Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, Courage or Cringe, featuring Joe Collins. Today we're joined by congressional hopeful, Republican maverick, and Maxine Waters nemesis, Joe Collins. And we'll look at BLM's take on the Cuba crisis, the NFL's controversial new COVID rules, and DC drama with the January 6th committee. Is BLM using the Cuba crisis to push its own ideological agenda at a terrible time? Or are defenders of the U.S. quick to blame, but slow to take responsibility for our country's contribution to the crisis? Is the NFL protecting the game by creating the safest environment for its athletes? Or are they violating the rights of their players with a default vaccine mandate that overtly punishes those who refuse to comply? And finally, are Republicans rightfully pulling out of a partisan commission looking to score political points? Or is GOP leadership unwilling to face the ugly truth that the previous head of their party created the situation they now find themselves in? This and more on this special episode of TDR. So first things first, Joe, I want to thank you for winning me a bet. Okay. Because Jesus said yes. 95% probability, 95, 95%. that I'm you pretty, are going to come in I'm person. I'm pretty specific. I don't just say like, yeah, Bob Hark. I'm pretty specific. People think I'm hard to get a hold of and I'm not. And I'll show up everywhere, anywhere as I do. That's, that's great, man. No, we, we appreciate it. It's just that, you know, what we found and the, the reality is the majority of people, I think my stat is not off. Mm-hmm. And you're just you're the exception to that rule, I think, in this case. Yeah. But, I'm sure uh, you're, not, you're not unused to being the exception to the rule. Yeah, we definitely have gone... Uh, and I think part of it, frankly, is look. I think the COVID thing is part, but I also think is the re- the rise of Zoom and and video conferencing. People are just gotten a lot more comfortable of being able to do everything from their home. Yeah. So it's just hard to get them out, you know. Because we've had some folks on the on the podcast that are not don't don't strike me as super uh, conservative in the sense of like being really worried about you know the pandemic. All that, yeah, yeah they, they just don't. They seem pretty loosey. It's just like they also don't really feel like leaving their house. You know, I think it's a lot of that going on. So that's kind of more where I'm coming Preacher from. Preacher comfort. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So 43rd District. Yes. Right. District. Now, by the way, I did my homework. I looked this up and it's a super diverse district that you're running, uh, you know, to be in Congress for. I mean, any place that includes you got Playa Vista, which is right down the street here. And you also have, you know, Englewood. You've got some parts of Torrance, right? Hawthorne, all that, all that stuff. 
I mean, super diverse kind of background. Yeah, what, what are the main cities that the 43rd District includes? We have part of Inglewood, um, Westchester area, the airport, Pa Vista. Um, we have Hawthorne, Gardena. We have uh, Torrance. We have half of Torrance. Um, what else do we have? Harbor City, uh, parts of Del Air. Wow, yeah, that's a pretty broad. Yeah, 70, 72 miles. It's 757,000 people that live in the district. Right. So, got a lot of people. They don't all vote, though. Only yeah. 411,000 people are registered to vote. And out of how many? Would you say wasn't it? Seven hundred. So basically, like fifty-five, sixty percent mm-hmm. are registered, mm-hmm. and registered. of those, only a percentage probably goes. You know what? This last election, we had the highest percentage of voters ever. You know, out of four hundred eleven thousand people who were registered to vote, three hundred fifty-seven thousand people came out to vote, which is ridiculous. It's never happened before. Normally, have like a thirty percent voter turnout, but this time it's like eighty percent. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. You know, I actually went and I looked at it. And I, I'll just pull it up before before you got here and. Look, I mean, for you personally, you definitely got the highest percentage of Republican vote yeah. of the last in the last two elections, I would say, right? Because 2016, 2018, um, Navarro was his name, right? Omar Navarro, right, was the guy that was there. I think the highest he got was maybe 24%. Something like that. Something like that, like in 2016. 2016, I think 24%, maybe 2018, 22%, as it went down some. And you were in the 28, I want to say, right? Yeah. We did a lot of voter registration, you mm-hmm. know, and I think the difference is... Uh, a lot of people in the district has never spoken to a Republican before. And a lot, yeah. of, a lot of conservatives, Republicans like to stay in their safe space. But since I'm from the inner city, it's easy for me to go out and talk to everybody. And I think one thing that we did, and, um, and I think we talked about it before the show, mm-hmm. when it comes to political party perspective, we were strategic in removing that political party um, from the conversation. And we made people understand that that's your choice, your mm-hmm. political party uh, preference is your choice. It has no relevance on how we move when it comes to politics, how we move when it comes to improving the quality of life for people who live in a district. Right. Know? And so that was very that was very good at allowing people to come talk to us and you know, they could tell me how they feel about certain things from their perspective all day. And I'm like, all right, cool. How, what, how, what? How, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. How I is probably it, the same question. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I have tons of questions for yeah. you. Uh, how is it like being a Republican in the Trump era? Because I feel like, yeah. like it's a kind of thing where there's two. I have a more literally, basic question there's literally that, are two flavors of it. There's, there's people that are really have leaning into it, and I think it's been part of what's made them successful. And there's others that are either slightly gun shy about associating themselves, or just simply kind of try to stay off the fray yeah. because they're worried about getting roped in, but know that in the back of their mind, like, hey, you kind of have to stay frenemies. Maybe is a good way to describe it. Like, where do you? How do you see yourself relative to that? And and how has it been? being African-American, Republican, in an era where you have someone like Trump that is so polarizing that really causes, like, a lot of reaction. Sometimes positive, because part of the reason I think the voting has been so high, I mean, he is part of the reason. People are just excited one way or the other, for or against. But I'm super curious, like, from your perspective, how you've seen that kind of this era come in and how have you played into that or how how do you see that era? I think the polarization from President Trump comes... From the media, you know, the, the half-truths and the sound bias that they use to try to make them look bad. Um, as far as myself, uh, as a U.S. Navy veteran, um, I like to carry myself as a man, you know, and I don't want to put my reputation on a reputation of somebody else. And so I like President Trump. I think he's cool. Uh, I support him. Uh, but just like when you support anybody, there are things that you like that you're going to say good job. There are things that you don't like that you need to call out and say, you know mm-hmm. what, that was not a good job, and that's where I'll fall along the lines. I think the biggest issue that I had where people were like, oh, you're a Trumper, you're a Trumper, you're a Trumper. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. You right. know, I'm not riding um, 
Trump's coattail or right. building my reputation based off President Trump. If he does things that I like, I'm going to call it out as well as things that I don't like because, again, I'm a man. I stand on my own two feet and I don't have to put my reputation behind anybody to stand like a lot of people do. Right. So um, for me, it was it was frustrating. But at the same token, I mean, can't take life too serious because life don't take you serious. But right. I think that's what's happened over the, this last cycle is the fact that if you are agreeing with any one candidate, it's almost like you have to accept every single thing they've ever done, good or bad. And if you disagree with somebody, you have to all disagree with right. every single thing that they've done, good and bad. And I definitely have experienced that sense of you know polarization across the nation over the last you know five to ten years. So, I mean, I'm sure you see it from a very different perspective because you're in this seat of like running for office and all this stuff. But I, I have noticed that, and it's become unacceptable to partially agree or partially disagree right. with anybody. It's, it's like you can't agree on one thing. Also, you're you're that thing. Right. I just heard the comment, and we'll get into it a, a little bit later when we talk about the January 6th Commission. But McCarthy just called uh, Cheney. And uh, and uh, I'm blanking the person's name right now. The the Pelosi Republicans. Oh, Kinsinger. 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 Pelosi Republicans. It's like like this thing where like you cannot agree on a single thing, right? Or even agree on looking at a single thing. Because I was saying, oh yeah, you're one of those. You're you're the other kind of guy, right? So that's the I think the challenging part that we're kind of in right now. Well, here's here's the thing with Cheney, right? Mm -hmm. And and not to bash her um, or anything like that because I don't want no problems with her dad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone wants any problems with her dad. Exactly. (laughs) But Cheney. What her problem was, President Trump won her district, mm-hmm. right? And you, as a legislator, as a person who represents the people, have to represent the people in a manner that they want to be represented. Cheney didn't do that. If President Trump won your district, then your opinion that you're displaying should be the opinion of the people who live in your district, not your own personal opinion, just because you don't like the guy. You know right. what I'm saying? Representative so think, democracy. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that's where the issue falls with, with Cheney. Like, I don't have a problem with what she does. Right, but you know, like her views were not in alignment with the people. Exactly. And but but and how does that then tie out to what you just said with the sense that you can also still agree with maybe certain uh, policies of a person, mm-hmm. but not agree with all of how they were handling things, right? Yeah. The, the, does that also kind of come to play? I mean, or, or maybe her criticism of President Trump sort of are so vocal that they sort of outweigh the support that they do have on maybe some of the things that she does that I should agree with them. Well, it wasn't the criticism. I mean, you can vote to censure somebody, right? Like, you're talking way too much trash. You got to tone it down a little bit. You're the President of the United States. Carry yourself in a different manner. Right. You always got to flex on somebody. Um, but to vote to impeach him because of an insurrection that was pre-planned was, was uh, the point where I think, like, you know... The, well, that's You're definitely like what pushed over, over yeah. the edge, right? Because it was the vote to imp- to impeach, which people obviously like. It was a the second impeachment. We, we I mean, we kind of joked about it, whether we agree or not, right? And, and I, I, t- I tend to yeah, be, I tend to be pretty. I'm pretty liberal. It'll come up pretty quickly, but but I also like Charlie and I in one of our episodes we talked about this. We kind of laughed at the second it was it was moment to impeach. Like everything was already been drafted. It was like great, <laughs> right? For us, you know, yeah. So you know, copy paste and they had that uh, built bam, in 2015. They had the exactly. package already on the show. Such a, yeah. and, and whether I agree or not on whether it merited a second impeachment, but it was just there was such. It was quick. Yeah. It was quick. There was it's such a change trying to, to, to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's but that's part of the, the challenge, right, is that you have a, a president, which kind of where my question was coming from, that just sparks so much controversy yeah. that it just makes it really hard that even if, I think for some people that may agree with some of the things that he does, it's just so much of his personal behavior yeah. 
just makes it hard to bypass that for the policy. It was a trash talking. It was a, it's literally the trash talking that got him put out. You know what I'm saying? You can, it's so many, so much of a cocky behavior that you, that anybody can take. Yeah. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And at one point you have to just sit back. You don't have to flex. Like I said, you don't have to, well, I did this and I did that and I did that and I did that. And it was like, no, it's your whole entire team did it. Yeah. You know, that's why you'll never hear me say, I did this, I did, I'll say we right. or my team or us. You know, it's never me, 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 because I didn't do all of it by myself, just like him. That's the part you could never take out of Trump, though. And I said that all the time on this show is that this guy has been running these, these corporations and in this kind of cutthroat, you know, business world that, you know, Jesus and I spent a bunch of time. And when I saw Trump the first time, even when he announced running, I was like, I've seen this character a million times. Everybody else was so shocked and dismayed by it for good reasons and for not so good reasons. But for me, it was like, man, I've seen this movie before. And it's a guy who has never heard the word no, uses every tactic in his in his toolkit to get his outcome because that's how those guys at that level business, I'm not excusing, I'm just saying that's how, right, they, that's operate. how they operate. That's what they are. They never sleep. You know, they're always thinking about the next deal and all that. So it was not as surprising or shocking to me because I kind of knew what 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 they, what they we were in for or what we were going to get, even outside of his policy prescriptions or anything like that, just who he was and his background as a person. You know what I mean? You know, Joe, I think for a lot of us who... Look, especially over the last four years, President Trump, I think a lot of people that maybe were sitting on the sidelines just got a lot more interested in what was happening in politics, right? Sometimes for the for the show of it, entertainment, or the, the train wreck, but, but got a lot more interested. But I think few of us actually understand the process that people go through, especially when running. So I was really curious for yourself, right? Running for the 43rd Congressional District, you know, those are elections that happen every two years. What is it like? A, going through that process. And are you in like in this constant... State of running. State of running. Because look, we've seen obviously your material, your site. You're, you're still talking about running. And, and even, I mean, that's sort of, it's a way to question. I'll, I'll wait to my other follow But I definitely want to understand from you, how does that actually work? Because it does feel with such a short two-year window is that even if you lose, you're kind of still sort of in the game. And it's just a matter of fact, it's just kind of a point of at what point do you say... Hey, maybe we we've given this enough of a try, pull back, or no, we we continue running hard because election is all, we're always running because it's such a short window that it, that actually happened, you know, between between the actual election cycles. So here's the deal: you got you got two types of we well, got three types of candidates, right? Perfect. You got candidates who actually want to make a difference, and and that's a type like me. You have candidates who run because you know they they want the the fame and the publicity that's like your omar navarro's and you have candidates who run because people say hey you should run give it a great try and they're like a halfway candidate you know mm-hmm. and so the difference is you know the halfway candidate they'll wait to a couple of months before election and then they'll try to run and they'll try to win they're, they're going to always lose right and you have the candidates who want the fame they don't care about winning. They want to raise a lot of money and take that money and spend it on whatever they want. So it's like a big campaign for those guys. Mm-hmm. It's like a yeah. more, yeah, more visibility. More like personal benefit, yeah. visibility, yeah. And you have the guys like me who I continue to run because, for one, we made a huge impact on our community, right? Mm-hmm. We did our food drives, 300,000 pounds of food, almost 40,000 backpacks, school supplies, um, hiring fairs, job fairs, cross community, getting involved in the police and community relationships, being there for every murder and you know crime scene that happens, whether it's with the community or the law enforcement, working with you know the mayor and city council members and and the uh, um, police department to come up with different ways to be able to solve the the police issue or or the issues of you know getting resources back to the community. Um, those are guys like me, right? And I continue to run because. Uh, I didn't want to let up off the progress that we made. You know, mm-hmm. you make a, a huge impact in a community that's a heavy Democrat district 
who has never seen a Republican, and now they're starting to be like, you know what, this guy's not so bad. I'm not going to be a Republican, but I'll vote for a Republican yeah. because of what he done for the community. Even if you pull back, they forget about you. Or they sure. say, oh, you just you just want top to of win. mind the entire time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna ask though about that specific thing, just because a lot of people don't know your story, right? And I'm 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 not sure we know your full story. We know about the Navy service. Yeah. We know yeah. about the district you represent. I've seen all your 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 video work, which I think got you on the scene, not just here in LA, but also nationally. So we know all that part. But like part of my you know uh, you know question is about. That response you just talked about. Not a lot of people are, you know, look at see a guy like you and say, "Oh, I'm going to vote for this guy." The moment they find out you're Republican, you're conservative, you, you know. So I, I'm interested in what got you to that point, and then you know what the why the responses are the way that they are. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are those structures that that have people look at a guy like you and say, "Oh, he's got to be on my side ideologically," and the moment that they find out you're not, they're like, "Oh, I'm not. I'm not having. I have nothing to do with him." Um, I grew up in a Democrat household, South LA, 104th in Normandy is where I, where I grew up at. Um, and our house was really shot up in a drive-by. And yeah, I got involved in gangs very young. I actually grew up in it. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that I was growing up in a gang. It was just my norm, you know, and I didn't understand it until I actually moved out of tech, I moved out of California. So, um, Mm -hmm. when I got into high school, we moved to, uh, Texas because my involvement in, in gangs and the fights coming home from school and, and all type of things has uh, gotten too much for my mom. <clears throat> she wanted to make sure that we had a great life growing up, so she moved us right outside of Dallas. Um, finished high school, uh, joined the U.S. Navy after I was um, in college and working at Walmart. And I didn't join the Navy because of patriotism to this country. I actually didn't even know the Navy existed. I knew Navy SEALs, I knew the Army. That was it. And that's because my stepdad was in the Army. And I was actually at, at Walmart working. And the recruiter came in there. Her name is Angela G. Martinez. We'll never forget it. Beautiful, you know, nice. with a white suit on. Sure. And I'm like, I'm about to go holler at her. So, <laughs> you know, the rifle age of like 17 and a half, because I graduated early. How old was she? She was like 34 or something like that. Nice. First class uh, petty officer in the U.S. Navy. Um, Traded numbers and everything. And then she texts me, hey, come have lunch with me at the office mm-hmm. around noon. I'm like, all right, perfect. Now I go up there. And next thing I know, I'm at MEPS in Dallas. And they're offering me a job and telling me I can do this and that and all the type of stuff. I know you're being recruited. Exactly. <laughs> What's going on here? I had already had a NASDAQ <laughs> score. I didn't even know anything about this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm going to go to Florida. And I'm going to work on some jets and look at some honeys on the beach. Sure. And I'm in boot camp two weeks later. And you know what's crazy? I didn't tell my mom that I was joining the Navy. She found out when a recruiter came to pick me up to go to boot camp. And she was pissed off. She was mad. She was like, where do you think you're going? I'm going to the Navy. You can't go to the Navy. And the recruiter was like, well, ma'am, he's 18. He could do what he wants. I'm like, mom, I'm 18. I got to go make a man of myself and go do something. Now, why, did, why didn't yeah, she want did you to go? Did she have a bad experience because of her, her, her husband? No, nah, we're in the inner city. You know, uh, from the inner city, the military is not for black people when you're from mm-hmm. the inner city. It's for mm-hmm. white guys, you know. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and my uncle was like, don't go fight no white man's war and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, all right, great. But, you know, what job are y'all offering me? You mm-hmm. know, you guys, you know, talking about being gang members or doing whatever it is that you do. I'm really not built out for that. I'm like five, six. You know, back then I was like 130 pounds. I was not equipped for um, the continuation of, of gang life, you know. And so... Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to college. I knew that I'm a C average student and joined the military 13 and a half years later. Um, I'm like, I want to get involved in politics. And that's when President Trump was running mm-hmm. uh, for office. And so I actually became a conservative or Republican whenever I joined the military. And because my uh, mentors would say, yeah, it's time for you to vote now. You're 18. 
So you choose your political party based on the the values and ideals of that party and you choose the people you vote for based on the same thing. And so, hmm. you know, they forced me to go do, do research on research, both parties. Yeah. The Republican Party was a no-brainer. No slavery, perfect. Freedom, perfect. Uh, small government, perfect. And you look at the Democrat Party, okay, you fight to keep slavery going, start the KKK, uh, fought for every right and segregation, you know, fought for these discriminatory housing programs, systemic, if you want to talk about systemic racism or systematic racism, Democrat Party, everything is Democrat, Democrat, Democrat when it comes to oppression of, of people who are, who are non-white. Even the Homestead Act, they use that mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, white people who are coming over to the United States, unfortunately, and it had no, uh, no precedence for blacks and, and Latinos or even poor white people who are here and uh, all Democrat policies. And so I was just like, I think I'm going to be a Republican. Even the first people who were in a, in politics that were black, Republican. Yeah. It was a no-brainer. And um, hopped in. I was a presidential candidate coming out of the U.S. Navy. That's how I was able to get out on administrative separation, general under honorable conditions for becoming a presidential candidate, candidate while on active duty. And um, I had a huge issue trying to get my benefits. The VA system was broken. I wasn't getting my appointments. I was actually homeless. I was living on the streets. Um, cause I use You're my in LA, Joe? You, let me tell you something. Skid Row is not for me, right? Yeah. I was at Rancho's Palace Verdes down at the lighthouse in a nice part where nobody- You were homeless in the right place, the yeah, right exactly. zip code. Good for you. <laughs> exactly. I go to the YMCA, I'll take a shower and everything. And, um, you know, I go to Maxine's office, try to get help. I'm like, she's a black woman. She got to help me. She like black people, all this stuff I'm hearing about her. It's not true. It's mm. not true. She cares about herself. And, um, so how she did me as a black man, as a veteran, uh, non-responsive three or four months. Finally, I filed a lawsuit against the military. Magically, all my benefits came through. I started getting appointments, got back paid and everything, and uh, hopped in a race to run against Maxine Waters. And that's how I ended up in this race. Wow. And we went hard, too. How long were you on the street? Uh, like three and three and a half months. Three and a half months? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, it was it was like, it was almost voluntary. You can't be in the military for 13 and a half years and get out and, and tell your family, hey, I don't have anywhere to go. And I tried it. My grandmother was like, oh, you're in a way. She's, oh, you're in a way, and I got to do this. And I, and if I do this at this time, then you're going to be up, and you're going to mess up the routine. And if you're up at nighttime, sure. and I'm sleeping at nighttime, you're going to make all the bills go high. And me and my dad, we're cool, but we didn't have the best relationship in the entire world, so he wasn't he wasn't having Like, it not either. an option. So, yeah. You know, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to ask anybody for help. I'll do it, you know, thug it out on the streets and, and see how it works out. And it, and it worked out pretty good. My wife and I have run a, a nonprofit uh, for homelessness for 20 years. And I know your work, your video work in particular, like really features that backdrop quite a bit. Now, obviously, there's a lot of that going on in your district, too. And so I'm sure you're bringing attention to it, just basically bringing attention to it. But I didn't know you had a personal connection to it as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Joe, as you think about, because I think a lot of what you talked about in your stories about literally caring about the community and creating an impact, right? And to the degree that the work that you're doing I, I definitely agree with you. I think that may change the perspective of what being Republican actually is. No, that's not being Republican. Republican is ideology. That's just me personally caring about my community. I, I get that. What I'm saying is that people may actually agree to even support you because you b may bring a different definition of what Republican may actually is, right? Because people have such strong ties to someone that is Republican versus Democrat and where they vote for, right? So a lot of the reasons that you stated are what I would think of the traditional reasons of what we think about the Republican Party. And even reasons for not being Democrat, I think a lot of the historical wrongdoings that the Democratic Party did, but some of those are no, not as tied anymore to what the current sort of situation is, right? So I guess part of my question is, like, if you want to be a, 
don't know if a cynic is the right word, but if you want, if part of the how you make the biggest impact was really based on, in order for you to make the biggest impact, it means me getting elected. Part of the challenge that I see in what you're dealing with and running with someone like a Maxine Waters, and look, we could talk about all that's wrong with Maxine Waters, and frankly, I don't know enough about her to even argue anything about like whether you're right or wrong. So I'm like, okay. You got to come by the 4th of July yeah, parade, which is right here, yeah, one yeah, street over. So you're every year in the convertible, the, the, in the convertible. The, yeah, but the question, the, my, my point though, is that when you look at how dominant she's been over the last, I don't know how many years, I think I saw a stat that she's never gotten less than 70% of the vote. Yeah. Is part of the, did, did it ever run, like did you ever consider maybe the way to make the biggest impact, if part of that biggest impact is being elected, is to actually go against her, but not as a Republican, but as a Democrat? Because when you think about those uh, politicians that have been unseated, that have been in, in Congress for a long time, it usually happens from people within their own party, not the other, especially when they're in those in those districts that are just so dominated by one Entrenched. Side. So entrenched, yeah. right? You think about AOC when she got in there, right? It was like, it was through a primary. It wasn't the general election because it, the other person on the Republican side, frankly, in that in that district doesn't really matter. They don't, it doesn't matter at that point. Did that ever cross your mind? Is that something that you, you thought about? Once again, if the objective is make the biggest impact in my community and if part of that doing that is by being being elected. Yeah, I did. You know, I thought about the best opportunity to win is to is to be a Democrat. But on another token, <clears throat> I wouldn't be true to myself, mm. you know, and I wouldn't be real if I yeah. changed parties, become a Democrat just to run for political office and win. You know, uh, I think I could be a Republican and, and make the greatest impact. But one of the biggest issues that we have is, you know, is legit. No Republicans in a district that's putting in work. Yeah. So at this point, even when I talk to people, the political party doesn't matter. It's about who they see on the on a regular basis, and they know Maxine. They see Maxine, and um, they vote for Maxine. You know, I haven't been able to touch every single person in the district like she has. She's been in for forty seven years, uh, fifteen years as an assembly person, the rest as a person in Congress. Yeah. So that's what we're dealing with, and that's why we put so much effort, so much money into our last election, so I can have the same name ID in the community as Maxine, and now we do. And so now it's just about moving towards the negative rhetoric and then talking about the positive things that we've done and what we're going to continue to do for the community uh, if I get elected. That's what I hear the most from people. Is, and, 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 and do you see mm -hmm. the, the sort of the fight for these type of elections, especially with districts like this one, to be like more and more having to be a national issue rather than a local one? Because look, part of the what benefits Maxine Waters is the fact that she has such a large national presence. And that's where a lot of us, you know, unfortunately, we neglect local elections because of national, you know, of international. So do you think part of the the formula to try to, you know, cr like take chips away at that sort of that brand that she has is by having a much larger national platform? How does that sort of fit into how you're thinking about the race? Um, I think that the national platform doesn't really matter, right? Because you can't talk to people. Uh, about national issues who can't pay their local bills. Yeah. You know, they just really That's don't right. care about national issues. I've talked to a lot of people in the community and they don't care about national issues. They need daycare. They want to get the homeless fixed. They want new jobs in the community. They want better education. So, uh, that's what I try to stick to. The national brand is great for fundraising, but it's not, it ain't going to help win an election. So much of this mm. for voting for, for, you know, somebody who's been in office for 47 years, I got to imagine so much of it is just muscle memory. Like it's like, oh, I see yeah. that name, and I just punch it because the one I remember. I don't, I don't know how many people who are voting actually know anything that any particular candidate has done. Yeah, Is that exactly. Fair. That's fair. That's okay. extremely fair. The people think that Maxine Waters is actually fighting for them. Maxine, she hasn't done anything since the 1990s, and she's been censured and silenced, and pretty much ineffective from being able to do her job just because her rhetoric is so demeaning and repugnant to what 
the the Constitution of the United States is and and to what her job description is supposed to be. Hmm. Your yeah. your your spot, the most recent one, because you talked about kind of a new tone, new tonality, right? Uh, I definitely noticed that idea of like, hey, it's got to be unity. We got to come together and all that. And I definitely felt that on the spot that you did um, this last go the, for this the more recent spot. My question is about just the diversity of your district that you're running in. Like I'm imagining people right down the hill in Playa Vista who are like sitting at that dog park and I always say the dog with sweaters, the French bulldog with sweaters, right? The French bulldog with sweaters crowd. And you also have people against this backdrop of homelessness and crime and gang violence. I get the message for the latter because I've seen the spots that you've done. It's like, hey, the, I, I'm from here. I was born here. This is my place. I know what, what, what needs you know, are required here. How do you speak to that like Silicon Beach person, person working at Google who's going to vote for Maxine probably because they've just been voting progressive and liberal their whole lives. They think that's part of the job. Like what's your message for them? They're not living against that backdrop. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that we try to do is, is make people understand uh, what goes on in our community. And as you know, just like the people from Missouri say, I'm from the show me state, you got to show me. And it's easy to talk to a Silicon Valley person um, about everything that's going right. But trying to get them to understand what's going wrong is something that you can't talk about. You have to actually show them, look at what's going on. This is what's happening. These are policies from, you know, certain groups of individuals who want to, you know, be soft on crime or not, uh, you know, do anything to lower the taxes or cost of living. And I think it's easier to show them, you know, than it is to continue to talk to them about it. So. Yeah. No, that's – I always wonder about that because obviously Jesus and I spent our career in marketing and looking at segments mm-hmm. and like how to talk to X person in X particular way. And it's just like a real rich diversity of of constituent that you have, right? Um, it's a challenge because the interests are not very well aligned between sure. these two groups. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So it is it's definitely challenging. And we have a number of interests that might not necessarily align in our in our courage or cringe uh, segment. So I'm anxious to get to some of these um, these topics and hear your opinion because you are clearly a man who has no shyness about his point of view, Joe. So I want to hear what you've got to say. So you've heard the show. Uh, you, but we, in any case, we like to go yeah. over the rules just in case, so everybody knows what uh, what's going on with courage or cringe. So, Jesus, you want to break it down for us? Yeah. So we'll we'll do uh, you know courage or cringe three topics. I'm gonna tee up the topic, um, and then we're gonna go around the room. And I think the idea here is that based on the issue, it's either courageous or it's cringe worthy, right? And then kind of get into your your why. Uh, as much as we as we possibly can, we try to make a call one way or the other. And the reality is most of these issues, as they typically are, are gray, right? So shades of gray. Yeah. But even in those cases, still try to come down one way or the other. Um, and then we'll go to our room. And then you being our special guest, of course, we'll start with you every time. Okay. We, even act, we even added a sort of extra congressional uh, topic for this yeah, week. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That'd be fun. Figure we like, got we an expert in the room. We got to, you know. That happened in Congress. We, we got to talk about it. So uh, you ready to play, Joe? Yeah, let's do All it. All right, let's do it. Jesus. Perfect. Uh, so courage or cringe, Black Lives Matter face backlash for a statement on Cuba protest. Um, so over the last few weeks, there has been an uprising in Cuba with thousands of people protesting and demanding freedom from the government that has been in place for the last 60 plus years. One quick point of order, Jesus. Yeah. Are we, is is the courage or cringe on the backlash for their statement or on their statement? 
Uh, I think, or oh, just based on how you frame it, could just do. I mean, it's, it's the same thing, but we could. Say, well, no, it's we not. Do it on the backlash. No, it's not. On the, let, okay, so let's do it on the backlash. Yeah, on the backlash. Yeah, In other yeah. words, that people are are beating up on BLM because of what they said. Of course, yeah, is yeah, is beating yes. up on them courageous or cringeworthy? Right, Got it. Right, okay, right. exactly. Right, so good. that's that's very the courage or cringe. Just right? checking. You like how you use um, point of order? See that? I'm all learning a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So he tries to let it throw me off. See, I'm getting my flow. He throws me off. That's it. You know, now there are a lot of elements that are contributed to this this uprising, right? But but the spark. Seems to be kind of a combination of of one people being tired of government abuse, number two the overall lack of resource and economic situation that the island uh, has, and then three the contrast to people in power and their kids seeming to be living a great life versus uh, the the average person, right? Uh, and there's been a lot of very disturbing reporting coming from the island. Everything from people being being arrested, et cetera. A lot of video content has come out. It's been going on for a minute too. Yeah, uh, that's right. But I think especially right now, there's been a, a pretty big uptick, right? But just like everything else in our recent history in this country, the response here in the States has been highly politicized one, right? And to this politicized response, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which is the actual group, we talk, as a matter of fact, we talk quite a bit about it in this in this podcast, is, you know, if you have the Bill of Movement, and then you have the actual foundation, right, the actual group. Uh, they jump right in, causing immediate backlash, right? So they put out a statement calling for the immediate end of the U.S. government's embargo on Cuba while praising the country for its solidarity with oppressed peoples of African descent, right? So I'm going to read a couple of, of the statements that they made in this. This is on Instagram where they put this out. Uh, they put, they said, this cruel and inhumane policy instituted without the explicit intention of the state, with the, uh, instituted with the explicit, explicit intention of destabilizing the country and undermining Cubans' rights to choose their own government is at the heart of the Cuban crisis, since and they're talking about the embargo there. Correct. Yeah. Since 1962, the United States has has forced pain and suffering uh, on the people of Cuba by cutting off food, medicine, supplies, costing the tiny island, the tiny island nation, an estimated 130 billion. Uh, the people of Cuba are being punished by the U.S. government because the country has maintained its committed of sovereignty and self determination. Cuba has historically demonstrated solidarity with oppressed peoples of African descent from protecting black revolutionaries like Asanta, uh, Asanta Shakur, supporting black liberation struggles in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea, and South Africa, right? The now, the backlash for their statement, right, came in kind of two forms. One is from those that deeply oppose the position that the embargo has anything to do with the current situation in Cuba, mm -hmm. right, and place 100% of the blame on the Cuban government. So that's sort of one group. And then the other group, which is, I think, a smaller group, are those that say that if the entire critique is aimed at the U.S. embargo, it fails to also address the concerns of Cuban protesting their own government, right? Right. So those are two groups. And probably both ends of a ide broad ideological <coughs> spectrum Correct. on yeah, this yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, there also seems to be an element of anti-blackness in Cuba, which the BLM statement also seemed to miss, and then later recognized by an official statement that they put out, right? And they said, we also understand that anti-blackness exists with Cuba and its global issue, and it's a, it's a global issue. We struggle for, for and alongside black people across the, the, the diaspora for liberation and self-sovereignty. Can say that word sovereignty. Sovereignty. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, according to New York Times, Afro Cubans have routinely been pushed out of the margins in the country, with only 11 percent of Black Cubans reporting owning a bank account, and 70 percent of Black and mixed Cubans saying they didn't have internet access. Now, sounds bad. Yeah, it sounds like not, not a great policy for how they handle um, mm -hmm. Afro Cubans in Cuba. Now, lastly, there's been an additional statement that has come out from the BLM organization that has slightly changed its tune, right, or at least recognized the calls by the people of Cuba, and they said. Black Lives Matter is committed to listening and uplifting the voices of our Afro-Cuban family as they call for change. Mm -hmm. And we remain steadfast in our commitment for black freedom everywhere. BLM is in deep solidarity with the people of Cuba and continues to demand an end of the U.S. embargo. 
right? So courage or cringe. BLM user the, using the Cuba crisis to push its own ideological position, or U.S. defenders quick to blame but slow but slow to take their own responsibility in contributing to the Cuba crisis. So, Joe, yes. guess always go cringe. first. Yeah. So, courage or cringe once again on the response, on the backlash that BLM has faced based on their statement. And we'll, we'll talk about the original statement because they sort of well, we can talk about that one as well. They sort of they kind slightly of tweaked yeah. their second statement, but at least on the on the initial backlash they received in their statement. What What do you think? Uh, I would say courage on a backlash. Yes, and uh, and a reason why is because it's about time that people start calling out BLM, right? You talk about an organization that was created back in 2012, 2013 with the idea of um, creating or influencing policy that can improve the quality of life for people of color uh, in America. And they have literally done absolutely nothing to, to, to push that point and create policy. Um, they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, very effective at raising hundreds of millions of dollars off the bodies of dead black people while doing absolutely nothing for those families. And then they move into an international aspect, getting involved with Palestine and then getting involved with Cuba. And I'm pretty sure that nobody uh, in the BLM movement has ever been outside of the United States. And to assume that for whatever reason, an embargo is the reason for the oppression of people in Cuba is, is kind of ridiculous, right? Now, whether you're standing for the Cuban government or against the Cuban government, we can all agree that the reason for the oppression of Cuban people, regardless of whatever color you are, is because of a communist government. And I think that you know, it's time people call BLM out for what they are, and that's stupid. Mm. Okay. Well, tell us, tell us how right. you really feel about that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I have. Um, can I go? You have. A, you, you want to? Yeah. Want no, to I have on that. a lot of thoughts on what you just said, but yeah, no comment. Well, go, go, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I, I guess yeah. a, a couple of things yeah. because one of the critiques that I've definitely heard is is and, and more from conservative circles would be the, the comment you made, which is that BLM doesn't while they've raised a lot of money from from actually almost exactly what you just said from black dead people uh they actually don't help black families right uh right now can you i mean i, I guess how do you think about in terms of their ability to raise the awareness that has then sparked this broader movement that does at least seem to have resulted in a lot more attention being paid by both policymakers by um, by corporations. We talk a lot about the fact that there is so many now even diverse focused funds that are looking to basically invest in in black and brown entrepreneurs that frankly probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for some of the initial work that these folks did that then led to with this broader movement. Or do you think that those things are completely separated from each other that you can't give them any credit for having sort of started that that, that movement? So that's a really good question. And, and I can understand how you know, you you come up with that point of view, or even even aspect when it comes to companies wanting to invest in, and people of color. I would say this, from a business owner's perspective, companies are always looking to diversify. They're always looking to invest in and minority businesses, even the federal government. And that came from, unfortunately, Dick Cheney when he was uh, killing it in an arms game with government contracts. And now the government says, you know, we're going to set aside 20% of contracts for minority-owned business, as does a lot of businesses. When it comes to 
highlighting uh, issues of injustice in the black and brown community just because you create an organization and highlight these issues doesn't mean anything's going to get done about it. I mean, look how long it took to get police reform, all right? It took a very long time. Now, police reform is long past due. And police reform has been trying to get passed by Democrats and Republicans or whatever form they were trying to get uh, for a very long time. They just couldn't come to some type of consensus to get something passed. I don't think Black Lives Matter highlighted a lot of issues that were going on in black communities. And regardless, if it's highlighting, what about those families, right? Mm -hmm. The families are publicized. Mm -hmm. The families are put through criticism. Uh, the families are put through right. this media frenzy, whether it's from the left or, or the right. And at the end of the day, the families aren't receiving the fruits of, of, of the benefits of having this organization highlight their family. So in essence, the organization is putting people on a spot who would necessarily probably prefer not to be on a spot for the sake of raising money. Now, if you're going to put somebody on a spot, at least pay for the funeral, pay for the attorney fees when they right, go back right, and right. sue the company, or at least set up some type of law firm. Mm -hmm. Uh, since you have a, a huge pot of money and people want to invest to represent these families in court against the state or against the cities or against whatever mm -hmm. forces, and we don't see that happening. I have a lot of run-ins with Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles. I even had um, an instance when Dejan Kasi was killed by the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and we were going in there working with the sheriffs. Mind you, me and my uh, campaign staff was the reason why the family was able to go see the body uh, before they took the body to the morgue. Now, they told me, oh, you can't be over here because you're a Republican. Black Lives Matter is taking care of us. And I said, well, what did they do for you? Well, they got a supporter party. I said, you serious? So Black Lives Matter literally think that you are shit. All they was able to do was get you a porter potty, and they raised $3 million off the John Cassie being killed. Your family still got to pay attorney fees. Your family still got to pay yeah. for that burial. Funeral. But they're making money off him being dead, being shot by the Sheriff's Department. And you think they care about you because they gave you a porter potty? No legislation has been passed. I'm working with the mayor to get, le well, the former mayor to get legislation passed, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these organizations, although they do highlight a lot of things, and they can put a spotlight on companies that want to invest in smaller black businesses or Latino businesses, they're not pushing legislation for change. Yeah. I do I do believe that there can be a positive outcome to a situation that's not ideal. So to Jesus's point, I actually do think because I've seen it that heightened awareness that's been brought about by unfortunate events can have a, a positive end, even though I also concede with you that, and you would know more about this than I would, yeah. that like how that actually makes the difference on the ground in an actual situation probably leaves a lot to be desired of. But here's the deal, though. Mm -hmm. It can create a positive outcome with a negative influence because I'm a black man, right? Mm -hmm. Why is it that I have to feel like I'm a victim in order for somebody to invest in my business? I mm -hmm. want people to invest in my business not because I'm black. I want them to invest in my business because my ideals are great and the exactly. potential sure. to, you know, create an impact on the community or make a lot of money is there, you know? And so although we're going to highlight and we're going to invest in this black business, this black business, they're not investing because the ideas are good. They're investing because they're black. And a lot of people, well, a, a lot of people are doing that. And I would actually say that I disagree with that a thousand percent. I wouldn't want somebody to give me money. You know, and we have raised money just because I'm Latino. Like, right. I wouldn't want that. But I guess if they if they shift their view and I can be part of the conversation because they're thinking, like, I need to take a look and change my watering holes and look at some people that I haven't right. looked at before and then hold me to the same kind of uh, requirements that they would anybody else, I'm okay with that 
getting them to that watering hole because the reality of it is, is like a lot of this muscle memory that we're talking about, people voting for Maxine, that exists everywhere. And sometimes you need a shocking thing like your video to get people yeah. to go like- You need a forcing mechanism. Like a, for, a forcing yeah. mechanism to get people to go like, oh, you know what? Now, by the way, I do not deny for a second, Joe, that a lot of people, and maybe I'm back to the French bulldog sweater wearing crowd, the bulldogs, Everybody but, not like but French, bulldogs. French <laughs> wearing sweaters or in baby carriages. But when you go down to that crowd, maybe a lot of them are doing it just because you're black. I disagree with that. I completely 1000% disagree with that. I think a lot of that happens. And I think it happens more on the left than it does on the right, frankly. Um, but I do agree with Jesus in that point that there can be a forcing mechanism to kind of get people to change their watering hole and go, okay, now let me look at this and catch some new fish and then, you know, weigh the fish the same way, measure the fish the same way, but I'm in a different pond. And I think that is good. You know what I'm saying? When that does happen. Um, I guess my thought on this, that was a lot of feedback on, a, on our, a lot, but it's going to yeah, be a nine hour show. Yeah, Joe, yeah. you got to come back. Part, part two, three, <laughs> and 12, two. this time with good mics. All right. Um, um, so for, for me, this thing, look, uh, so I went to school in South Florida. A lot, I have a lot of friends that are Cuban. Uh, I wasn't there when the last time, the, the big Marielito boat lift, but there was tens of thousands of people washing up on the beach, literally like washing up on the beach mm-hmm. back in the eighties. I lived there a little bit later mm-hmm. than that, but, um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. So it was like, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen a lot of that and I have a lot of friends who are Cuban more in Florida than here. This has been going on for 60 plus years. And this is the first time that there's people on the street in that 60 year period holding up signs and saying, I want freedom and all this stuff. So for me, a little bit of the narrative that I've heard is a lot of this is like driven almost entirely by COVID. I think that there's there could be a whole bunch of things and COVID could be that last piece that kind of set it off. But it's not just that, right? It's a, it's a series of things. And to your point, you cannot remove any of this from the very principal fact that, the, that there's a communist government that's running that island. It's impoverished. The people are controlled to a, a great degree. Look at what they've done since the protests. Shut off everybody's internet. Like, I mean, that just tells you all you need to know right there, right? So I think that you can't divorce what the communist regime is from the reality of what's going on on the ground. And I reject the communist regime and I reject everything that they, that, that they stand for. Having said that, I do think the embargo should needs to end. And because, A, it hadn't really, hasn't really been effective. I mean, it's been going on for six decades and, and you know, it's yeah. like, that's probably a time to, it's like Maxine, it's going on for five, five decades. <laughs> it's time to bring that one to an end too, right? So, so I just don't think it's working. And I think fundamentally, even though the embargo doesn't affect medicine and food, at least technically it doesn't. Nevertheless, the fact that the U.S. says, I'm not going to trade with you, man, people are like, you know, if the U.S. isn't doing it, I, you just know the way the world works, right? A lot of people are like, I'm not going to piss off the U.S. I'm just going to do my own thing. Except for China. China, don't China yeah, doesn't China mind. Doesn't and Russia doesn't either. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And those are big superpowers. And so, but my point is that, you know, there are people there who who need the benefit of the things that we can bring as we do to the rest of the world. They shouldn't be treated different than that. So I think the embargo needs to end. But for me, I'm courage 100%, just like you. I think the backlash was warranted. I think the fact that the backlash was bipartisan is evidence that it was warranted, frankly. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I'm 100% on the backlash of, uh, of the BLM statement. I think they were wrong to make it. It's also a timing thing. Like, damn, man. I mean, you got people – like, this is fresh and happening right now. And it's like missing the reason why it's happening and talking about the good things Cuba may have done. Maybe they did do some good things. Great. Like, you know, even the blind squirrel gets the nut. But, like, that's not the time, I think. Right. To be right, talking right. about this stuff, so I'm courage. Uh, so, so I think we're gonna have a consensus here because I'm also highly courage. I think, look, I think BLM got over their skis on this one, right? I think they they 
you know, really pushing their, their ideology first and foremost, but really missing the point of the situation that is happening in Cuba. And also, look, to even towards to, what you just said, Charlie, when you when you make the point that even if, like, whether I agree or not with the things that they that they claim uh, Cuba, the role that they played, and they did, look, they, Cuba did play a role in uh, in South Africa, right? Like with that's apartheid. An, yeah, with, with apartheid. They did. Having said that, doesn't mean that they're not doing like, atrocious things to their own people. Or that black Cubans in Cuba are not having an even harder time, which actually were the first to actually start protesting. So it's missing all of that point, right? So I think from that from that perspective, I think they completely m- missed the mark. Um, but I have found it really interesting how much of a visceral reaction people have as it relates to any association with the embargo playing any role was happening in Cuba. And that's the part where, where I don't fully follow, right? Which is because in the, in the case, look... If you think about embargoes as a tool to put economic pressure on a country to change whatever policy they're doing, then you are adding economic pressure to that country. And the reality, really what you're mostly doing is you're giving Cuba government a great excuse for having a shitty situation. Because all they can do, and all they do for the last 60 years, is just blame the U.S. Mm-hmm. All of our pains, all of our suffering is because the U.S. has done it, this to it's us. It's also just like, come on, man. If it was like Estonia doing an embargo on you, you'd be like, you know what? Right, right, I don't exactly. care. Yeah. Like, Ireland like is going to give us our embargoes. Like, we've like, given eh. the Cuban government the best excuse to run a shitty place yeah. and to give their people. And I think people just don't buy it anymore, right? So, and that's why I, th- I think people are like saying yeah. like, that's why I understand what people say this is not because of the embargo. I yeah. get I get that point in the context of like what we're talking about right now is all of the things that this government has done to its people because the embargo has been there the entire the entire time for the last 60 years. So so therefore you can't say like it's a new thing. So right. I understand that point. Yeah. But I also can't just disassociate an embargo from also creating helping influence the situation as there. So let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. This one, right? With the embargo communist government, what happens? I think you have a commu- you have a communist government that maybe still fails. Wait, hold on, let me let me let me, let me follow, let me follow up for a second. Maybe still fails. And if that's the case, then the, is the Cubans people's right to then choose whatever government they want to have. Look, the reality is, let's talk about what happened in Cuba prior to Castro coming in. The U.S. controlled the country, right? In in the in the night, I look I'm looking at the stat. In 1902, American companies controlled 80 percent of Cubans or exports. It was 80%. A, but it was it was a it was a travel economy. It was a resort but, economy. But, you could but, say but the it, same thing about a thousand different things. That's right. But 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 still, Charlie, we yeah. think about and they had an actual the right to come at any point, come in mm-hmm. and and basically invade the country to protect American interests. That's not a good situation for the for for the for the for the Cuban for the Cuban country for their own ability to control their own government, right? I'm not saying that that was that that's the reason for all this. I'm simply saying that that situation wasn't great either, yeah. right? Batista was also a dictator. Let's remember that who was backed by the U.S. government until he just didn't want to leave. They're like, well, wait a minute, maybe this is the wrong horse, and that's what gave Castro the excuse to then take over, right? And they didn't like him either because the, he was not a very you know, pro-capitalism person. And and look, I understand that the, the that's the a issue. super generous way to call. Yeah, a exactly, communist right. dictator is definitely not pro capitalist. But, but you had a, a capitalist dictator right before, right? Is this a it is Charlie? This is a guy that would yeah. not would not leave power, right? With all of the assets yeah. being controlled by foreign entities, mm-hmm. with literally you sign a treaty telling the U.S. at any moment you can come in and take over this country if your interests of America are are being put at risk. That's not a good situation for any country to be in. Joe, that doesn't in sound like a very sovereign state. From from a, a military perspective, I don't think it really matters because when you look at the United States' interest in any other country, that's pretty much what, what happens. You can look at Japan. You can look at Thailand. You can look at Guam. You can look at the Outland Minor 
violence you can look at are everybody who's associated with the Hague Convention. This is really what it is. It's a, it's a partnership, a public-private partnership. I think that if you have a, a communist government, you mm-hmm. lift the embargo, the communist government wastes resources that it used those people's money to, to purchase. You know, so I think lifting the embargo under a communist country is kind of like a it's a it's a farce ideology, right? I would get rid of the communist government, then lift the embargo first. That way, you have a free government, free enterprise, um, and it'll regulate itself out to the people, and people have the ability to be able to create whatever type of economic growth, the wealth that they want for for that country. Joe, do you think is though is the right or the role of the U.S. to basically? dictate what type of government every single country should have? No, but I do think it's the right and role of the United States to pick and choose who they would prefer to trade with. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But 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 to that point, then, whether or not they are a—look, let's, let's, let's make a hypothetical. Let's say somehow, you know, the Cuban government found religion here all of a sudden, right? They're like, we're not going to be the kind of government that we have been with our people, right? We're not going to incarcerate people for protesting against us. We're not going to be— do Not going to take people's internet away. Right. We're, we're going to be much more open, but yet we choose to have a different type of government. Maybe it is communist. Whatever, whatever choose they, they choose— at that point, I do think I don't see why us as a country we should be coming in and telling any other country what kind of government they should be running. Like I understand if there is actual like violation of human rights and the role that the U.S. should play there, but the at least our, our own track record of influencing other countries' government is not a great. Can, one. can I can I get in here real quick though on this? I I disagree with your with the abstraction. I, I would agree with you rather on the abstraction. Should the government tell another government what uh-huh. to do? I agree with that. Having said that, though, that sounds a lot like the argument that says, you know, we don't regulate, you know, the corner bakery, therefore we shouldn't regulate Google, another private business. I think when you look at the United States, you have to take into context that this is the largest, most prosperous, most influential country in the history of civilization, and therefore we have an outsized responsibility to participate in whatever way is right. I'm not saying tell anybody what to do. Participate and dictate are two very different things. Okay, well, participate. What I'm saying, though, is that the binary of, like, we shouldn't tell somebody what to do, like, ends the conversation to my mind. So we should be in the same situation as Guam is with respect to this issue. I disagree. Oh, I think yeah, we should I, be. I, we I should have a point. different yeah, yeah. perspective. I just think our history is, is terrible on that. Right. <clears throat> Anytime we've gone to country to dictate what kind of government they should have, it doesn't typically work out. We literally are leaving Afghanistan after twenty years, and it, see, what about, it sounds like in six months they're going to be right back to where they were. What about Japan? I mean, that's that's a, a pretty. Well, yeah, you could. Okay, well, what about Japan? What about South Africa? You just brought it up earlier. We got involved in some of that. Yeah, Cuba was involved in that in that as well. As a matter of fact, the the Russians were involved in that as well. It was actually it was a big communist push that became that helped uh, South Africa become less apartheid. But mm-hmm. I say our role when we come in is one thing: you come in and help a, a a country that needs your help in that moment. But when we come in trying to institute a new type of government, it's just. You get into these endless engagements that don't typically work out work work out very well, and that's what I'm concerned about. In this case, I think a lot of what that started 60 years ago, where there was such a a mindset that it was that it was this battle between communism and capitalism, that I feel like at least at the time the country really viewed that any gain that the communist countries had was sort of an attack against capitalism. And there was like all out war to see which side, but we're no longer in that situation, right? The reality, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, we got got to move on to the next Courage or Cringe, but I would say this, just as a closing closing thought, Joe, unless you want to get in here, is that I also concede that things were not all peaches and cream with Batista before, and that the binary, the, the framing of communism versus democracy is the only way to
to look at this as probably short-sighted. Having said that, I think if you ask most Cubans, both on the island and off the island, that, you know, where would they rather be growing up? I think most people would say, um, you know, pre-1960, whatever the year was, as opposed to now. That's my, that's my, that's my thought. Uh, and I do think that the embargo needs to end. How it ends, to your point, Joe, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe you got to, you know, there's some steps that come before. But, um, but it's whatever this is, is an easy decision for me to make in terms of when to step out like BLM did and say what they did. So, and then as a side note, it's so much fun for me, Joe, because every, let me tell you something, every other guest we've had, every conversation, it's me, it's me in the, in the two against one. So, you know, it's nice to occasionally be in there with, uh, with Jesus. See? See? This is great. This is great. You, you are in That's the middle. It. Yeah, you That's are. It. See, I love that. I love that. All right. All cool. Right. Next, Courage or Cringe. So, new NFL policy around COVID-19. Nice. So Change another, it up. Another good one. Uh, you a football so, fan, Joe? Yes, I am. What's your team? The Rams, of course. Nice. No, nice. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> well, you could have said the Chargers. <laughs> could have said the Chargers. No, absolutely. Yeah, so the, true. <laughs> They moved in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the NFL has released new rules for how it will handle COVID-19 and the need for player vaccinations. Basically, the NFL has said that if a team experiences a COVID-19 outbreak among, among its unvaccinated players and the game is canceled, the team will be subject to a forfeit, as opposed to a reschedule of game, which as it was for this past season, right? Uh, also, if a game is a rule of forfeit, neither team's players will be paid for that for their weekly salary. Do, so they, that's de- a, do they define an outbreak? Like, what does that mean? More you than, know what? I looked it up to see yeah. what an outbreak was, but it didn't actually say. Charlie, Joe's so, already, Joe's yeah. prime for this one. No, this He's stretching, he's flexing, <laughs> so, all kinds of stuff going on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this yeah, is, this yeah, is a, yeah. a huge deal, right? And become a big variable for any team wanting to make the playoffs, right? Especially for teams that have a high number of unvaccinated players. It just becomes a, a big gamble, right? Uh, which, of course, got immediate reaction, right? And there was a couple of notable responses. Probably the biggest one was from uh, DeAndre Hopkins, which is yeah. a wide receiver for Arizona Cardinals. Yeah. He said on Twitter, never thought I would say this, but being put in a position to hurt my team because I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. There was also Matthew uh, Junin, who's a a linebacker for the New England uh, Patriots, who just basically was pretty straightforward. The NFL bleep sucks, right? And you could fill in the bleep. Um, And then you have Tampa Bay Buccaneers running back uh, Leonard Fournette, uh, who just said, vaccines, I can't do it, right? So... Now, by by the way, and even Dr. Fauci actually weighed in on this. Uh, He was in an interview. I forget who it was. That guy is like... He doesn't ever have a free moment in his schedule. That guy is weighs in <coughs> is, on uh, everything I could possibly he's think He's over-indexing of. on everything. So over-indexing. He said, the NFL is sending a very strong signal, signal that it's very important to get vaccinated. If you want to play football and you want to do it in a way that you feel unrestricted and, and not worry about any penalties, you just get vaccinated. Because they're saying that if unvaccinated people get infected, there are going to be consequences. Mm-hmm. Right Now, to date, 78% of the league's players have received at least one shot of 70 COVID. what? 70 78. 78. I've received at least one shot of the COVID-19 vaccine. Okay. I haven't seen a fully vaccinated. So, so one out of four out. haven't, basically, roughly. I haven't seen no no shot, right? But right. the unvaccinated, I think I think the way that they're looking at it is probably people that are that have people that are vaccinated, but I'm sure it's people that have received at least both both vaccines, right? Because I'm sure they're not gonna do it if you only if Right, you only but what I'm one. saying is one out of four haven't received any. Correct. Got it. Correct. Okay. All right. Um, now neither the NFL nor the NFL Player Association have mandated vaccine for players. However, they have uh, agreed on protocols that put restrictions on unvaccinated players. And these are pretty crazy. Wait, there's more than what oh, they yeah, just... Oh, yeah, yeah, So that, that was just the penalties. That happens if a game gets canceled, right, oh. because of an outbreak. But the actual restrictions are a number, right? So I'll, I'll read off a few of them. One is unvaccinated players must be tested daily for COVID-19, as well as wear masks at team facilities and during travel. Also, unvaccinated players may not leave the team hotel or interact with people outside of the organization while traveling. 
Also, unvaccinated players are not permitted to eat meals with teammates. I'm assuming that are vaccinated. And only 15 unvaccinated players can work out in the weight room at a given time. Uh, and unvaccinated players who come close to con- who come into close contact with individuals who test positive for COVID-19 will be subject to a mandatory quarantine. And any unvaccinated players found to have broken these rules could be fined fifty thousand dollars by the league or their respective teams for their first offense. Fifty grand, fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, individually. Correct. Okay. Got it. Uh, so courage. I'm just tabulating. I'm tabulating. NFL answers. protecting the game by creating the safest environment for players. Or a violation of players' rights by the league's default vaccine mandate that overly punishes players' teams who refuse to comply. Mm. Joe, you were stretching quite a bit on this one. Let's let's hear it. What do you what do you think? I would say courage. You gotta be. You gotta have a lot of courage to implement some dumb mandates like that. I think that's, <laughs> that's ridiculous. The concept in itself is extremely cringeworthy. I mean, the reason why is because. Yeah, I think it's a vaccine that hasn't been approved by the FDA yet mm-hmm. for yeah. a virus, whether it's the Delta variant or the coronavirus itself, who has a um, infection rate of 0.007, a death rate of 0.002, and a recovery rate of damn near 100%, you know, 7% recovery rate. And I think it's just ridiculous that, you know, this virus is being overblown. Uh, we can take the virus, we compare it to the, the, the murder rate for any large city. The murder rate is com- it's extremely higher than the death rate from COVID-19, but nobody's shutting down states and shutting down cities and, and shutting down sports games for the death rate for, for murder, so I don't know what they're doing with COVID-19. Uh, another thing is um, medical freedom, right? Everybody should have the, the right to medical freedom. The vaccine passports, forcing people to get a vaccine is, is repugnant to the Constitution, is repugnant to uh, medical freedom, repugnant to HIPAA, is, 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 is overreach on their uh, personal rights. And I think that's, that's bad. That's bad for any organization. No organization should force anybody to get a vaccine. No organization should, should be able to force anybody to do anything when it comes to medical freedom. What happened to my body, my choice? Or was that just when it came to abortion? And um, regardless of how people feel, the vaccine, I mean, you can't even determine whether the vaccine is proven effective against COVID or the Delta variant because every single test any of the vaccines has been when it came to animals has failed. The animal trials has completely failed, then they skipped directly to human trials. And so with human trials, unless you're tracking every single person who will live or die from uh, after taking a COVID vaccine, you wouldn't be able to know if it's effective against COVID-19 or not, regardless of the type of technology that we have. It's just completely impossible. But that's just me. Probably have so you're opinions. hitting tons of points here. So I guess I, I guess let's start with the with the with one of them in terms of your, you know, their body, their right, right. Um, as it relates to the NFL, it's never operated as their body, their right, mm-hmm. right? Because the NFL controls what substances mm-hmm. players can take or not take in order for them to play in the NFL. So how do you how do you rec- reconcile that thought that the NFL operates? This is why you have some drug policy, et cetera, in the NFL versus in this case, saying an actual vaccine. Because that point is they they don't actually play in a league that that believes in that stance at all, and actually players have always operated under, under that under that stance to play play in the league. Well, they regulate uh, performance enhancement drugs, what sure. you can take, what you can't take, hallucinogenics, THCs, uh, marijuana, cocaine, things of that nature. When it comes to medication prescribed by a doctor, that's something that can't be regulated. The players have a choice. If you're hurting and a doctor prescribes you this, you know, sort of medication, you could take it. But a doctor never prescribed the, a vaccine for 
the possibility that you can catch COVID-19, a possibility that if you catch it, you will die or, or, or spread it. And even the fact that if you haven't been vaccinated, you can't sit with somebody who has been vaccinated. It shouldn't be a problem there because a vaccinated person can't transmit a right, virus right, right. to a person who is unvaccinated, unvaccinated, vice versa. You know, I mean, so those I restrictions are definitely made to just cause the most, the most, the amount most amount of distress, of distress yeah. pain, what, but what about What about the argument, Joe? Somebody could say, look, you don't have to be an NFL player. Like, you know what? Take a season off. Take a year off. Take two years off. Like, what did they said? You know, somebody said like, hey, you, you, you go do something else. This is like a, you know, privileged role that not everybody gets a chance to be. Like, somebody might say that. What would you say to that? They're absolutely right. You don't have to be an NFL player. And an NFL mm-hmm. player don't have to mandate unapproved vaccines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even if the vaccines were approved, you don't have to mandate a person take a vaccine if they don't want to put that into their body. Yeah. On that one, there's also, the, you know, I'm, I'm happy I took some philosophy courses in college, but there's also the difference of kind and the difference of degree. The difference of degree is saying, oh, uh, you know, you like coffee, but I like coffee with sugar. That's a difference of degree. A difference in kind is saying you like coffee and I like to jump out of an airplane. Those are difference in kind. Here, the idea of telling somebody, please don't take this versus you must inject this are different, not just in kind, but in degree. They're just different things. So I, you know, I, I reject that kind of premise. I, I think, look, I'm with you, uh, although it's an interesting turn of phrase. You said you're your courage because of how <laughs> how cringeworthy it is that they got to be courageous to be this dumb. Okay, but I'm going to go cringe on their decision, right? Hard cringe on what they did pretty much for almost all the same reasons you just described. I, I disagree with forcing someone to inoculate themselves against their will. I don't think that's happened. Never been a, you know, you look at this when it's happened historically, it's been a bad outcome, okay, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and there's, sorry, go ahead. That's right. And there's also legit people, there's people who are vaccine injured, there's people who legitimately may fall into that one-tenth of one percent where the vaccine could actually be hurtful to them. You don't know, right? I mean, even if it's 99% effective, what if the NFL player is the one percent that gets sick and dies from it? You're telling them they have to do that, right? So the whole reason we have choice is to avoid those situations and leave it up to the, the prescription of the individual in consultation with the medical professionals and all of that. So for me, pretty straightforward. I mean, look, I don't know how this one's going to play out. If it's 25%, my guess is it probably stays around 25%. Maybe it gets to 20%, but I just I think there's just a, a group of people in any population of 100 folks who are just not going to take a vaccine, period. Especially black people. When we talk about when they were uh, Tuskegee experiment forcefully injecting that was it the herpes virus into people and you know without telling them hey we're injecting you with herpes we're going to trial even during the clinton administration when they were injecting people and and in like forty thousand kids died from a test drug so. Mm, yeah so i'm cringe Jesus. So, yeah i'm at? definitely not with you guys on okay. this one uh for a whole set of reasons let me let me st- i guess some of that i kind of already, already hinted at which is look as it relates to the nfl um, they've the, the NFL has, has always had rules that basically dictate what players can or cannot put in their body, mm-hmm. right? And it is their right to choose whether or not they want to do this. As a matter of fact, look, I understand what they're doing. They're not calling it a mandate, but they really are. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that's the part where, like, just say what it is. Just call it a mandate. Just instead of having all this real painful thing that you, that you put in place, call it an actual mandate and just do Go all in. Do you think right. they're not because of what Joe just said? Do you think it's because they know that in a population that that's, has that many African-Americans, they're just not going to get 100%? No. no. It's because no, of lawsuits. No, no. Lawsuits? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's basically that because by leaving the option, you can say, hey, it's not a mandate. 
you still have the choice. I mean, it's exactly because of lawsuits. I also think, frankly, I don't. I think lawsuits probably wouldn't wouldn't matter as much in this case. I think it will be more just a PR mm-hmm. of it being. Look, the the leagues are constantly worrying about what are fans going to think. And the reality is, when you look at the fan base of the NFL, it's going to be a broad spectrum of people from different politi- political ideologies. So I think they're doing this in way to try to minimize what the more conservative people that are more like anti-vaccine sort of stance are going to have as relates to the leagues. The leagues have already got hit so much as it relates to their support for other social causes that I think they're not trying to add to it by leaving this option. Having said that, like, so I think having it this way, I understand how they got here. Also, the, when you think about what are the, the, the ways to solve for this, well, the reality is the league had to operate in a scenario where it requires so many restrictions for them to be able to run the, the 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 actual like the actual games and the reality is if you do have an outbreak it creates massive havoc on on the games themselves on the schedule and at some point you have to start be able to like start cutting your losses look i think the biggest argument people can make and i understand the point you're making joe which is that it's not it, it has a uh, emergency approval it doesn't have the full fda approval which is what you're referring to right so i i think that as the government we should do everything we can to get to that point where it has a full approval because without it, I think it still leaves that little thing out hanging out there that people can say, and they're right, it doesn't have the full FDA approval that every any kind of vaccine should have. But when you look at the actual death rates, when you look at people, actually the biggest thing prior that I look at right now is, is the percentage of people hospitalized. It's like 95% of people hospitalized right now are people that are unvaccinated. So it is working in the sense, at least people that are getting their vaccine, not that some people are still getting sick, of course, but a lot less are ending up in, in the hospital. Now, what the reality is the players, yeah. let me just finish my point. The, the players themselves are probably at a low risk. The reality is, look, they're young, they're healthy, they're, they're good people that even if they get sick with anything, they're probably a lot less likely to do. But it's not just the players. It's that whole ecosystem that the NFL touches. It's every restaurant they're going into, everyone that works in their, in their staff. So there is this multiplier effect that happens. You know, it's a reason why right now Florida has like 20% of the, of the cases, of the active cases of COVID of the entire country. Florida, right? I don't even know what, what the rank in terms of population for the country, but... There's like 12 million people that live there. I yeah, mean, but it's still, right? When you think about it as a percentage, like it's, it's just a lot it's of a people. It's a, it's a big state. What were you going to say, Joe? I was going to say, like, I, I, don't, I don't like the statistics <clears throat> that 95% of the people who are in a hospital from COVID are in a hospital uh, who are unvaccinated. That's like saying, you know... 100% of the people who got in a car accident who were in the hospital were in a hospital from a car accident or 100% of the people who were in the hospital from a <laughs> gunshot. Those like circular gunshot arguments. And, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think those those arguments are, are kind of kind of ridiculous. But I do understand the point that you're making. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like precautionary. Like, please, you know, if you can't get the vaccine, if you're willing to get the vaccine, if not, these are going to be the ramifications if you don't get the vaccine. And I think those ramifications fall back on the team while still, go, still giving those players the, the option to get it or not get it. Jesus, yeah. your, your point on though Joe's statement about the lethality and the the is so low, so 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 low. Your point on that is that be, as so long as you have any kind of any level of transmissibility, where that lethality rate could be applied to somebody who it makes a much bigger difference for, so long as that's the case, then you, we should have these. Well, so the, the, that's the, your those are different things, right? So I was referring to the effectiveness of the vaccine, right? The effectiveness of the vaccine, though, I think the best way to look at it is relative. No, to no, no, I know, but being, that's that that was one point so that, that was made, one. I want the, you to the address other one, the other on the, point. On yeah. the uh, fatality. So I just looked it up, right? Yeah. The deaths reported to COVID, and some of this, look, I, I I know what the arguments already are. It was like. How many of these were actually like really from COVID? Well, let's assume right? all of them are. Let's, let's assume, assume all, all of them are. are. So yeah. 610,722 deaths yeah. versus 34 million infections, almost 35 million infections, right? Mm-hmm. That's an equivalent of 1.7% mm-hmm. of deaths versus those that are, that are cases that were reported. Okay. Right? The, the, the issue in terms of 
of how fatal it actually is. The reality is the fatality rate really vary depending on what underlying the conditions you already have, your age. There's a yeah, bunch yeah. of reasons right. why that gets higher for some people versus right. lower for others, right? I, under, I understand that. The challenge that you have, though, is that it is a highly transmissible disease, which is that's the thing that becomes the sort of the X factor here, is that to the degree that you're not putting a handle on it, my only worry here is that how long are we willing to live with this where we have this ongoing flare-ups, right? Because, look, it just happened in, in my in my household. My daughter, one of my daughter's teachers for roller skating came back as being positive for, for COVID, right? Now, I don't know. I have no idea if she's vaccinated or not or whatever, but it, it caused this chain reaction where every single kid had to get tested. And my daughter falls in the age group where she can't even get a vaccine. She's, she's nine years old, right? So it's, it's not even if, if even if it was a full, fully FDA approved. So it is this thing that we have to constantly be living with right, right. now that I think that, and that if you're mm-hmm. able to get to a point where either you got enough people that get sick where they have the natural sort of uh, antibodies or enough people vaccinated, it's just about being able to be in this place of a little bit more stability. That's really more where I'm coming from. Let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. Um, can we name a vaccine that has 100% cured any disease? Uh, n- no. Yeah, probably not. But I, but I think there's there's diseases that are, that, are, that are pretty much gone away at this point. That they still happen once in a while, but rarely happen. Like polio would be probably one of them. Right. This means is that that as a matter of fact, when we when we think about uh, um, having to have required vaccination, look, and maybe I don't, maybe it's changed now, but for a long time, where kids in order for them to go into school, they had to get a certain set of vaccines immediately. So we also live in a society that this already has been the norm. Now I get the FDA approval piece, right? Like if it was fully approved, maybe maybe that's the key to this whole thing. Maybe that sort of solves the whole argument. They're like, we'll get it fully approved, and then we will have that conversation. But even that's already been in the in our society. Something that. Where, where were you going with it, Joe? Well, you know, we don't have any vaccines that's been one hundred percent effective in curing anything. So I don't see why this is different. That's like saying, "Hey, let me inject you with a strain of HIV just to make sure you have the antibodies to fight HIV." Right. And we can look at the flu numbers. Everybody has to get a flu shot, but now like flu deaths are significantly going down since COVID is going up. Flu hasn't went anywhere. Just. The, the times have changed and people yeah. are not tracking flus or maybe they are getting flu mixed up with coronavirus. But I still think that um, even with vaccine hesitancy, even if it was approved by the FDA, you're still going to have people who don't want to take it. And, and the that, reason yeah. why is because, you know, it's no 100 uh, percent way to ensure that, you know, you can get vaccinated and it's still going to be effective in the future. And, and another thing is nobody's ever talking about healthy lifestyles. You know what I'm saying? Just I like agree with said, that. Like, 100%. You know, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Issues, McDonald's is on every corner. Taco Bell is on every corner. Fast food, people still eating the most unhealthiest thing that you could think of in the entire world. But people, it's like, vaccine, 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 but we don't see any healthy living commercials. That, that's And that's a really good point because I think the part that the missed opportunity that from this whole thing is that it wasn't really part of the conversation. I think it's from people that have been, like someone like Joe Rogan has been very adamant about making that point. Uh, and it's true. I mean, the reality is when you look at people's lifestyle, even when you look at the the some of the the correlation between people that are obese versus actually dying from COVID or becoming really sick, it's a super high correlation there. But yet that hasn't really seemed to have changed the way that people sort of think about it. Because the reality is most of us are happy with just getting a pill or getting an injection and that's sort of solving all our problems. 
It's literally the same route that most people take and as it relates to a lot of things. For me, for me, this, this whole thing, Jesus has heard me say this before, Joe, but for me, it all comes down <clears throat> to the level of acceptable risk that individuals are willing to live with, right? So like the joke that I always make is like, hey, we know a mask works. Great. We all agree with that. Is two masks better than one? Yeah, it probably is. How about three? Yeah, probably better than two. How about eight? Yeah, probably better than four. At some point, you just aren't able to breathe. Maybe you, maybe it gets worse, but you can make that case, right? Where it's like, just add another one. But people at some point go, you know what? The level of incremental mental benefit is not worth the challenge. And I think what we're arguing at some point becomes that because when I, your question about how much are we willing to accept these flare-ups? Well, in a world where a hundred percent is the, is the mark, the answer is like, we're always going to be dealing with flare-ups and the backlash from the flare-ups and all that. Because if your, if your status is like, Hey man, until this is eradicated from existence and nobody ever gets sick from it, I'm not going to be happy or confident or want to leave my home or not want to take my mask off. You're probably never going to be in the group that says, Hey, it's cool to come outside. Other people may be at a point where it's like, Hey, you know what? Like I'm there already, you know? And I think risk aversion plays a role in this on some level. Yeah, I agree. Joe, anything? Oh, you're good. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Rounding out the corner, our last congressional oh, item of the day. So, this is a good one. This will be only Joe speaking yeah, for the next yeah. half well, hour. We're going to no. weigh in on this one. <laughs> so courage or cringe, McCarthy pulls his five GOP members from the January 6th commission after Pelosi rejects two of his picks. And by the way, those that commission just started today. I was just mm-hmm. seeing some of the... Some of the um, uh, like videos of it, right? I heard so, Maxine Waters was in on. No, I'm just making. It up. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just making it up. So yeah, trying to get drama. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so last month, House Democrats created a special panel to investigate the circumstances surrounding the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Pelosi moved forward her effort to create a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attack after it was blocked by Senate Republicans. Right now, the panel was supposed to include representatives from both parties, but that look that took a step back uh, this past week when House Majority Leader. Uh, Nancy Pelosi rejected two of the five picks by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Now, so there was ten total, right? Is that right? There was ten that were going to be on the panel total, five and five. That's actually, I think it is. I'm not, I'm not sure because he put forth five. It seems, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I think it's what it does, right? So Pelosi rejected uh, representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio. Uh, and Jim Banks of Indiana. By the way, before I say anything else, isn't Jim Jordan to me like the angriest person ever? Like he's, he's he very is angry, constantly upset. He's very angry. I can't like, imagine that him. dude's blood pressure must. That's be why like, the jacket's always off. He's yeah, ready to go. He's, just, like, he's ready to throw up. down. People from Ohio are like that, though. My in-laws are from there. They're are not they, happy. They're always no, I'm just fired up. I'm playing, Mom. <laughs> Podex. Sorry about that. Just kidding. Now, go ahead. Pelosi. To this, she said, "With respect to the, for the integrity of the investigation." With an insistence on the truth and with concern about statements made and actions taken by these members, speaking about Jordan and, and Banks, I must reject the recommendation of Representatives Bank and Jordan to select co- in a committee. Mm-hmm. Now, to this, McCarthy responded by pulling all five of the GOP nominees. You can't, and said, you can't have these two. You can't, you can't have, have any, can't any of them. Okay. Unless Speaker Pelosi reverses course and seats all five Republican nominees, Republicans will not be part uh, will not be party to the to their sham process. And will instead pursue our own investigation of the facts. She also accused Pelosi. <laughs> Joe's of doing that thing again, Jesus. Power. Yeah, Joe's doing that thing again, uh, Joe. And that she had broken the institution, right? Now, this move is seen uh, in a few ways by GOP strategists, right? So, one is seen as either a gift to Republicans because they never really want to take part of this. And if they were on the committee, they will be forced to confront some complicated questions over Trump's role in, in January 6th. Um, but also, the lack of Republicans appointees also means that there will be no longer allies of Trump who will be in the committee while they hold their high-profile hearings, right? But there's going to be at least one Republican, nationally now it's two, right, that will be included in, uh, and one is Representative Liz Cheney, who we were talking about earlier, 
who came out and defended Pelosi's decision, even suggested that Jordan could be a material witness to the investigation. Um, and she said, I agree with the speaker, what the speaker has done. At every opportunity, the minority leader, leader has attempted to prevent the American people from understanding what happened to block this investigation. I am absolutely dedicated and committed to making sure this investigation holds those accountable who did this and ensures that it will never, never happen again. And then on Sunday, Pelosi announced that she was uh, also appointing Representative Adam Kinsinger. Who we've talked about on the show before. About as well. yeah. right? mm-hmm. Now, both Kinsinger and Cheney were two of the Republicans who both supported Trump's second impeachment and the original bipartisan January 6th commission. Got it. Right? Okay. So, courage or cringe? Republicans rightfully pulling out of a, of a partisan commission looking to just score political points or GOP leadership unwilling to face the potential ugly truth that it was their leader and their leadership that created the situation. There's neither courage nor quench. I, I think it's just pure uh, bureaucracy, Yeah. right, to say the least. Because, for one, nothing's going to happen. January 6th commission is a waste of taxpayer dollars. We can have talking points for their upcoming 2022 election. And, you know, another reason why I've been talking about this ever since they've been talking about appointing a commission, it's not going to be bipartisan. And I told the lady on the news, uh, Real America's Voice News, like, oh, they're going to have Democrats and Republicans. I was like, listen, it's not going to be bipartisan. I don't care what you say. And they didn't believe me. And now here it comes out. You have a not partisan, um, you have a partisan uh, committee, which pretty much consists of the impeachment managers from the, right. his first two impeachment trials. Uh, I'm curious to see what information they come up with. I think it's going to be comical. Um, but I'm not giving that a cringeworthy or courage because I think it's, it's, it's ridiculous from the get-go. I think they need to start focusing on the, the business of the United States. Keep harping back on the presidency from uh, you know 2016 to 2020 in my opinion it's ridiculous focus on getting Joe Biden the best representation around him so he can make really really good decisions um, and, and stop embarrassing himself for the United States on TV and that's just my opinion from looking at the things he's been saying lately uh, but this going back and looking at the past and trying to you know, dig up stuff in the past, in my opinion, is just completely ridiculous. I think we have bigger things to worry about. I mean, like, look, inflation is going up. Um, we just killed a lot of jobs. The job market is is not increasing. The amount of people who are working is, is still up, I think, over the 400,000 persons a month would still filing for unemployment. Um, we still have international relationships that we have to figure out a way to rebuild. We have to be able to show force to other countries. We have to be able to take care of the homeless epidemic that we have in, in America. We have to be able to take care of the violence epidemic that we have in America. And instead of getting back to the business of the American people, you see people are still want to talk about what happened on January 6th, what they consider the most violent assault on the Capitol America has ever seen. And to that point, I would have to say that's also false. There was only one person that, would, that, that died, and that was Ashley Babbitt, and she was killed by one of the guys who were or either a Secret Service member or a Capitol Police Office when they shot her through through the door. So I think this whole entire thing, as far as they arrested tons and tons of people, whether uh, it was a legitimate arrest or not, and let the judicial system play itself out before Congress starts getting getting involved in things that has nothing to do with Congress. I think they should appoint maybe the CIA or FBI or one of the other ABC organizations to do this investigation instead of wasting Congress time with something that's not going to benefit the Mm. entire United States. This is my opinion. So so in, yeah, in, I love how you have to my opinion. That's my opinion. <laughs> well, no, and I think, first of all, congratulations on being the first guest ever on TDR to vote present on the uh, the Courage or Cringe. That's what you can do when you're in Congress, right? You can vote. You can vote for something or against something, or you can just vote that you just showed up, right? So that's what he did. Now, 
confession, I was hoping that you would give a compelling case for either courage or cringe because I'm on the fence. And since you haven't necessarily, I still, I still don't know what to do. Um, but let, let, there's a couple questions I have and maybe Joe, you could help me. I don't know. And if not, uh, I'll still figure it out. So let's assume that 10 people were going to be on this panel. I'm the minority leader. I put forth my five guys, two of them get rejected. Does that mean that I can also ask the majority for to reject some of the people she put forth or no? You should. I would have asked to reject Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff shouldn't be on that commission. It should be a commission of people who weren't participants in the uh, the, the last two impeachments. Yeah. You know, or people who wasn't involved in any type of investigation on President Trump. You need a peer bipartisanship panel, and those will have to be people who have never been involved in anything who can care less or, or more about who the President of the United States was at that time. Right. Which should or, be Congress. A more unbiased point of view as it relates to the, to the issue. Which, right. Because it shouldn't be Congress in itself, period. It should not be anybody in Congress. So you think it's more like a little bit of showboating for, for getting material on either side? The election is right around the corner. Why not? Yeah. People yeah. got to win those primaries. Because yeah. that, that's the part that I've wondered just from a process standpoint, right? So again, if, if, if it's 10 people, I get to put forth five, you reject two of them for whatever reasons, and now you're going over my head and putting the two that you want on there. Well, is, is then it, isn't it, it a little bit... It could have been a negotiation point, though. I mean, to your point, that, that feels like that would have been a better... It would, I think it would have been an actual better showing for McCarthy to say, hey, I reject the fact that you're taking two off. But if you are, then exactly what Joe yeah. just said. Then let's take off two people from your side who we already know that they already made the decision before it, they even looked at any data. That's kind of where I'm going. Off and so and then be really public about it. And, and did you right? come across? Because I didn't. No, there any, wasn't anywhere where I, there was something like they, that in terms of a negotiation? There wasn't. No, no, no. He immediately came out and said, if we can't have exactly what we said, then none of them are going to participate. Right. Rather, that was the, the yeah. But Republicans are always slow. McCarthy should have started the commission before anybody. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have in a party. They're slow. Democrats want it. Bam, bam, bam. They're getting things knocked out, you know, and, and then they get upset when if we started as Democrats, we make the rules. And less if we started as Republicans, we get to make the rules. And mm. that's and that's the they're always the way, behind I, a park. I've never heard anyone make that description of Democrats as being fast or Republicans being slow. I always think of it as the complete opposite. No, but I, no, <laughs> that's no, actually no, really that, interesting. See, they're, 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 they're quick to complain about things right. that they will never do anything about. Right. Right? Democrats, they'll complain about it, then go do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we do not do that. You know, you can look at yeah. the elections. Oh, we oh, it's election fraud, election yada, yada, yada. Well, why didn't you get in there and do the fraud first? Mm-hmm. They showed you on TV that everything that happened. Right, and all you did was complain about it. No investigations, no nothing. You let all these bozos who, oh, I'm doing this on behalf of the president or on behalf of the Republican Party, file all these embarrassing lawsuits, which I would have kicked out too. Read a lawsuit like my daughter wrote it. My daughter's 14; she probably could have wrote a write a better lawsuit than that because you have nothing to compel action. Oh, this happened, and it was this is BS, and that's BS, and that's BS, and the courts are like, all right, what do you want us to do about it? Hmm. Right. Well, that, that was always my my complaint is that the rhetoric that you were hearing people say was disconnected with what actually was being tried in the courts, mm-hmm. and that's that's also because then it felt like all PR work on one side, and then you look at what's actually happening in the courts, like well, that, those are not the same exactly, thing. Exactly, and that was that was part of part of the issue. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take for granted what are, you are said. You closer to one side now. Charlie, yeah, no, I am. I, no, no, I, I think <laughs> I, I think I think I'm gonna have to go cringe on this one, and the reason I'm gonna take for granted what you said, Jesus. So if there's evidence to the contrary, then I want to know about it. But I'm gonna take for granted that this is maybe a miss opportunity to to um, to negotiate again. I give you five, you pull two of mine, I come back and I say all five are gone rather than saying, let's look at your five and get this to actually be the right thing. If I kind of skip that step, plus what Joe just said about I should have been the one taking the lead on this commission to begin with if there's going to be one, I, I think both of those point. things 100%. are... 
are strikes against McCarthy in this case. And if I have to come down binary, I'm going to come down on cringe. So that's where I'm at. You know, I hadn't thought about what you just said, but I do think it would have been such a powerful thing to do if you're the Republican Party to be the one that call, that comes out and calls for this kind of commission. Because I think that's the issue when you look at this, is that it does feel like you have one party that's trying to just kind of forget about it really quickly. And you have another party like, no, 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 let's not forget that this is a really big thing that just happened, which is, I think, a slightly different point to what you were saying. Look, I also agree with you. Like, when you think about all the other issues that are happening in this country and the fact that you have this legislature that is just unable to make any decisions on anything, exactly. which is my biggest frustration, right, is we don't we don't pass policy anymore. It's like everything is done by a budget, re, you know, re, reallocation, right? And that's a terrible way to, to do things because you could literally just bypass another another one of the, of the, of the side of the, of the house. Um, and I, I think that would have gone a long way. I think the response is like, I feel, I feel like, like a little kid that, that gets to, told no on something and then they go pout and kind of get out of the way. And then it basically allowed for for uh, Pelosi here to say, first of all, your Senate Republicans already didn't want to do this. So you have one strike against you that Republicans don't want to talk about this. And then the second you get a little bit of pushback, you pull, you pull yourself out of the, the entire game. Fine. I'm going to find other Republicans who are already vocal about this. Right. To be so make it look a little at least a little bit bipartisan and then, prove, you know, move forward with the with the actual process. So I, I think it's a mistake all the way around by McCarthy. And I don't know how this, because I do agree with you, Joe, that so much of this is just political posturing. It really is. Right. But I don't know how this move is a smart move by McCarthy that helps them with their base that they pulled out. And you saw Republicans in there. And the, look, the, and the, the, still, the, and the Republicans, you're going to pr pretty much tell what they're how they're going to net out. Exactly. I mean, right? And you're still going to get to hear these folks, Capitol Police that were there, you're going to get to hear all these stories and all stuff is going to come out and you're not even in the in the, in the the room to have a conversation. Yeah. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very cringe on McCarthy pulling the, the five GOP members. All right. So we ended up split then across the board, right? I think we agreed on one. Split yes. on the others. And maybe for different reasons. And we got our first uh, present vote. Our first no vote. Awesome. Joe, how can people follow what you got going on? What do you want people to pay attention to? Like uh, hit us with all the 411. Yeah, you can go to my website, JoeCollins4Congress.com. It's all spelled out, JoeCollins4Congress.com. You can follow me on all social media platforms at Joe E. Collins 3, the number three. Awesome. Well, man, I want to thank you for coming by, yeah, having the great. conversation. Let's not make it the last one. Congrats on what you've done and how you've, uh, you know, broken through a little bit of the membrane and gotten a lot of attention. And uh, uh, again, appreciate you for participating on on the show. All right, everybody, remember to hit up JoeCollinsForCongress.com. Remember to subscribe to this show and hit up Patreon.com backslash the Diversity Remix. We'll see you again next time on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza, and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.